Could you open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and we begin our series called The Sermon. We, um, we have been working through the book of Matthew, and we come to this section that is the most known in the book of Matthew called The Sermon on the Mount. Some people call this section the Beatitudes. In the Greek, more appropriately, the idea is the hillside teachings. If you look up there, actually, do you notice the hills up there with the Sea of Galilee? Our creative team does a great job, so thanks, John, Sherry, and the rest. But that's the idea. Here we come to the mountain surrounding the Sea of Galilee, getting ready to hear our Lord teach. Last week, when Pastor Ken was introducing this sermon, he said something about the effect it had on his life. He said when he was really just getting into the Bible, they did a series on the Sermon on the Mount and it changed him. And it, it opened his eyes to what following Jesus is all about. Scriptures can do that. And my hope is that this will do this for you. Actually, Cher, could you turn me up just a hair? Thank you. It's funny, when I was in a uh, speech class at seminary, our preaching teacher worked for Dr. Tony Evans. Do you know Dr. Tony Evans? He's an African-American preacher, a tremendous preacher. And he worked for him for about 15 years. So this guy heard a lot of great sermons. So the students asked him, they said, what, are, what, do, you, what do you think are some of the greatest sermons ever given? Was it Martin Luther King Jr.'s I've Got a Dream speech? He said, yeah, that's probably pretty good. He said, how about John F. Kennedy's Ask Not What You're country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. He said, yeah, that would be a good sermon. People would say, how about Billy Graham? Do you think his sermons were great? Yeah, his were good. And they said, well, sounds like you're not too impressed by those sermons. What, what to you would be the greatest sermon ever? And rarely will teachers get choked up in class, but all of a sudden his eyes started tearing up, and he stood back. And he was an African-American man, so he's very, very uh, expressive in his emotions. And he would say, mm. Mm. could you imagine being by the Sea of Galilee with all of those people spread out on those hills that were overlooked the beautiful Galilee Sea with the wind coming off and the sun shining, and there's my Lord with the words that are incomparable. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Or blessed are those who mourn. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he said, just to be there, just to be there would be the greatest thing I could ever imagine. And by that statement, I think he gets it. Because this passage we have is a gift from the Lord's own mouth. I would call this Jesus's Opus Magnum, the masterpiece of the Master Himself. And we need to understand this. So our approach is going to be simple. We're going to take our time to understand what He's saying and then let it speak for itself. And hopefully these words will be so understood by you that you won't, you'll be haunted by them. And it will have to change you. So today we're going to begin just at the very beginning. It's Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 3, and it's called the Sermon. 
Here's how it reads. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why this one's titled, Poor in Spirit. So, the, so let's just begin by an overview of this, just to give you a pretty, an introduction to the sermon itself. The first question is, what is the theme of this? The Sermon of the Mount, actually we consider it verses 3 through 10, but it actually takes up all of chapter 5 through 7. The theme is found in chapter 4, verse 23. If you look in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So that's the theme. The theme is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. We're going to be talking about this throughout this book. What is the kingdom? We've already sort of mentioned it, but the kingdom is not a physical place. Someday it will be, but not right now. The kingdom is not a castle in the sky. The kingdom is not a country with a flag. The kingdom is primarily about a king and his rule over the hearts of people. It's his rule over me on the inside, over my soul. And this sermon is all about the rule, what it looks like when it's played out in the life. And it's going to be summed up at the beginning here in a few short, what are called epigrams. We'll talk about that in a second. Who is its target? Well, it's aimed at, according to verse 2, he taught them. Who did he teach? His disciples that came to sit around him. So in a sense, this is aimed at followers of Jesus, members who are in the kingdom. So you could even say, this is not for unbelievers. This is not for non-believers. This is for those who believe. And the reason why it's not for non-believers is this is a spiritual issue. It's for people that have a changed heart. One person could ask, if the kingdom is simply a matter of the heart, is it really a true kingdom after all? You know, it's are those just religious words, this whole idea of kingdom? And I'd say, no, the kingdom of God is the most powerful kingdom on this planet. And I'm going to give you an illustration. I have here a book in my hand called Tortured for Christ. It's a true stories of the underground church in the Eastern Bloc nations. So that would be Russia, Romania, Hungary, in the 1950s and 60s. It's written by a guy named Richard Wormbrand, a pastor that was persecuted tortured for Christ. And he talks about the underground church or those who are Christians. The underground church, they tried to hide their faith from the government because the government did not want them practicing public Christianity. And here's the reason why. Listen real closely. The secret police greatly persecuted the underground church because they recognized in it, the only effective resistance left. It was just the kind of resistance, a spiritual resistance, that if left unhindered would undermine their atheistic power. They recognized an immediate threat to them in the underground church. And here's the reason why. Listen really close. 
They knew that if a man believed in Christ, he would never be a mindless, willing subject. They knew they could imprison the physical body, but they couldn't imprison a man's spirit, his faith in God. And he writes, and so they fought it very hard. Notice something. If a man believed in Christ, this writer says he would not be a mindless, willing subject to the authorities that be. They could imprison the physical body, but they couldn't imprison the spirit. That's the point of the kingdom. The kingdom cannot be contained. It's inside, and you can't stop it. He says something very interesting. He tells a story. Listen to this story. It shows you just how powerful the kingdom is. When the Russians occupied Romania, two armed Russian soldiers entered a church with their guns in their hands. They said, we don't believe your faith. Those who do not abandon it immediately will be shot at once. Those who do abandon your faith, we want you to move to the right. Some moved to the right, and then they were ordered to leave the church and go home. They fled for their lives. When the Russians were alone with the remaining Christians, they put down their guns, locked the doors, and then they embraced those remaining and confessed, we too are Christians, but we wanted to have fellowship only with those who consider the truth worth dying for. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is an inward conviction that is so strong that it changes you And it causes you to live differently from everybody else in the world. Because your values are different. Your beliefs are different. And those values and beliefs will change your behavior. And it will be different. That's the point. question then is, how do you know if you really belong to the kingdom? Because hopefully we're not going to have somebody in here with a gun. How do you know? You will live like the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be compelled to. So there's three initial questions before we jump into it. Number one, is this meant for today? The reason why I say that is some churches say, this is meant for the millennial kingdom, a later date, not for today. And my answer is that's not true. This is meant for right now. Where you live and how you live. Second question, what does the word blessed mean? Because if you look at verse 3, it begins with the word blessed. Verse 4, blessed. Verse 5, blessed. Verse 6, blessed. So he keeps saying blessed. What does that mean? Because that's key. It's a key understanding. Some versions will interpret that word as happy. And in a way, that's what the Greek word means. The Greek word means blissful. Made happy with God. John Stott writes, happiness as we usually know it is a subjective state. Subjectivity means how I feel in the moment. Whereas Jesus presents blessedness here, or happiness, in an objective reality. It's the idea of the difference between worldly happy and godly happy. Worldly happy, people are usually happy in a world if they have enough money, if they're given power, if they have pleasure or popularity. So it's all outward working on my inside emotions. That's worldly happiness. Godly happiness is the inward dwelling of God and knowing that I'm at peace with Him. In modern language, blessed means 
You are living the dream, but you're living it the way Jesus wants you to live it. Third question, how do these Beatitudes work? Because if you notice, they are pretty quick. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're called epigrammical promises from the scholars. That means they're pithy statements, short statements, that are expressed very simply, but when you examine them, they plunge a depth of complexity that is staggering. They are the simplicity on the other side of complexity. You could look at it like this. They're like a bunch of beautiful flowers. Each verse is a different beautiful flower. And you notice the vibrant color, you smell the fragrance, but its objective is to pull you in so you could really see the true beauty that lies behind just the color and fragrance. It goes deep. And then once you understand these, you'll understand how they work. Their objective is to say, if you live this way in the present, you will receive this in the future. So it is always saying, if you live like this, you will receive this. That's the whole point of a promise. So these are known as the promises of the kingdom, specifically the kingdom of heaven. The best way to look at these promises from verses 3 through 10, it's a structure that is progressive in its growth. So you could say it's a logical spiritual progression. One verse leads to the next verse, but you can't get to the next verse until you go through the first verse. And then the next verse leads to the next verse, which leads to the next verse. So it's like a heavenly chain that's linked together. Some people see it, and they use it as, well, you get to pick and choose which one's your favorite. I used to. My favorite used to be, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I love that. Like, that's my verse. But the point is, you can't just jump in there. You've got to start at the very beginning, which is verse 3. Verse 3 is the doorway or the gate into the kingdom where you're going to get the promises. But the door, I have to tell you, is not accessible to all. Here's the reason why. If you can look at it like this, most people assume the kingdom of heaven's gate is the one on the right, the big one. No, you enter the small one. The gate in the heavens, tiny. The reason why is to get in, you must get low. It'll force you to crawl on your hands and knees. The reason why is because pride is not welcome here. It's a big banner up in heaven. Pride is not allowed. Because God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. So this is where the kingdom begins. And if you want the rest of the blessedness, if you want the rest of the verses, if you want the happy life, you have to start at verse 3. There's no other entrance. And this is where most people miss it completely. Our current brand of Christianity has been poisoned, I think, by the American dream. Instead of lowering yourself, we're all about self-promotion. Believe in yourself. Fight for your rights. Be true to who you are. Follow your dreams. Flex your muscles. Promote, promote, promote. Because you know, if you don't promote yourself, who will, they say. 
That is why most people will not enter. You'll hear people quote this all the time. Usually they'll quote it and say, this is the solution for society. This is the great template for social evolution. This is how we can teach the world to sing and bring harmony. But your heart must change if you're going to enter. It's a heart change. It's not just implemented policy from the top. And I would say most people refuse to enter because their heads won't fit. You have to have a smaller head to fit through the door. Because don't forget, Jesus came to die. Remember, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the door. It reads this, blessed are the poor in spirit. So I would say when we begin, we're going to begin in verse 3, we're going to begin on the door. And so if this is the only entrance into the kingdom, it's up utmost important we get this verse right. So we, we, we have to get it. We have to understand it. There's one main issue at hand. It's the word poor. What does that mean? The Greek word is pachas, which means utter helplessness, complete destitution, a beggar. So you could say, is Jesus asking us to be happy about being a beggar? About being poor? Yeah, he is. But why? Because honestly, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because I want to get rich, really. Well, first of all, we have to ask this question. Is this a commendation of financial poverty? Like, is this a, is this a way to say those who are economically poor are better off than those who aren't? Because in some branches of Christianity, that's what they teach. They teach that we need to praise the poor man. Even Mother Teresa will call those who are economically poor Jesus in disguise. So is the poor man somehow advantaged? Someone we must revere? Is that what this means? And I'd say no for two reasons. Number one, it can't be because Scripture is very clear. All people have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So sin, word, sin is an inward condition not an economic one. I'll say that again. Sin is an inward condition, not an economic one. It cuts across every socioeconomic level. Jesus says it like this. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This, he says, is what defiles a person. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the poor man is no nearer then the rich man to righteousness, poverty does not guarantee spirituality. So you could say the monk who has made a vow of poverty does not necessarily impress God as much as maybe a rich man who gives a lot of his money to the poor. God doesn't look on the outward, he looks on the inward. Second thing you could say is this, if material poverty is a condition that is considered blessed, then why are we encouraged to alleviate poverty? Why are we trying to help the poor not be poor anymore? If a poor man is closer to heaven than the rich, we should stop giving to them, right? Well, that's because it's not necessarily true. James hints that the poor does have an advantage in this. 
they understand want. And so if they understand material want, it'll be easier for them to understand spiritual want. Where the rich man often leans on his riches to take care of his spiritual needs. Like Laodicea, you think you're rich, but really, going underneath the surface, you're poor, blind, and naked. So it's not necessarily poor economically. If you notice, verse 3, there's a conditional clause after the word poor. Poor in spirit. In spirit. That is the operative realm where the word poor is to be applied. It is concerning the interior of the man, the soul of the man, the heart. Remember, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. So soul poverty is what we're talking about. It's when your heart says, I'm humble. I'm broken. I mean, I have nothing really to help for salvation. And I'm empty. When I come to God, I'm empty. I'm naked. Martin Luther would call it naked faith. But the crazy thing is, it's a blessed condition, so I should be happy about that. Like we sang, I'm sweetly broken. Why? Why should I be happy about this? Why, pray tell, should I rejoice? For two reasons. Number one, because it means the person who is humble, broken, empty, finally is seeing themselves rightly. They are no longer deluded about who they are. They finally understand when compared to eternal holiness, I've got nothing. That's what Luke 18, 11 through 13 is about. That's Jared Doty's favorite parable. It's where these two men come in to pray. One's a Pharisee. And he stands up and he says, thank you, Father. I'm not like the rest of these schmucks, is basically what he's saying. You know, I give money to you, God, and I am not sinning like the rest of these guys. Thank you, God, you made me this way. And it's disgusting. And the reason it's disgusting because he's deluded. Where in comes the tax collector and he says, forgive me. And he can't even look to heaven and he's on his knees. And he says, because I'm a sinner. He sees himself rightly. I'll never forget, I, uh, my senior year in in my high school, I played football, and I was the fastest on the team, and I was really proud of myself. I was super fast, you know, and I thought I could beat everybody until we played this team that a, had a five-star recruit that was being recruited by Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan State, and he was a wide receiver. I was a defensive back. And the coach said, Weeks, you get to cover this guy. Oh, no problem. No problem. The very first kickoff, this guy caught the kickoff, and he ran up the sidelines, past everybody. I thought I had an angle on him. And he ran past me like I was a horse with two broken legs. Like, man, this guy's fast. The whole rest of the game, I had to cover this guy. He, he burnt me almost every play. And it was at that moment I really understood what being fast meant. So to understand how slow I was, I had to see what being fast was like. To understand true righteousness, you need to see God and not be deluded about who you really are. There's this funny story about, um, told by Frank Peretti. 
and he's talking about this actress, California. She'd go to the beach and she'd hold out her arms and she'd look out and she would say to the top of her voice, I am God. I am God. I am God, she would say. And Frank Peretti said, now imagine you're the Archangel Michael from heaven watching this. And you're listening to her and he said, I bet you it sounds something like this. And he'd say, hey, Gabriel, come on over here and get a load of this woman. She thinks she's God. Now, we can hear that and say, you know, that's kind of funny. But to some degree, we all think we're God in our own eyes. Some of us walk around our house demanding people listen to us. We'll go to work demanding we get more recognition than we think we deserve. But poor in spirit is when a person says, I'm not God. Which leads to the second truth. You stop striving and you accept what God gives you. By striving is you stop trying to prove yourself. Prove you're better, you're special. You want accolades, you stop it. It's sort of my favorite parables, Luke 14, 7 to 11. And it's basically what I would call the kingdom's secret to success. So let's say they're having a wedding party and you come into the wedding party and back when it was written, the Bible was written, sitting in the front was the seat of honor. Sitting in the back was not. So you come in and what do you do? You take the front seat. Jesus said, be very careful because if the host of the party comes in and sees you and says, sorry, sir, that's not meant for you. Go sit in the back. Ooh, you'll be humiliated. But if you come in and sit in the back and the host sees you, he will say, sir, please come sit in the front and you will be honored. And I think the key to that parable is when you sit in the back, you know that's what you really deserve and you're okay with it. The key to all of life is sitting in the back. So the reason we must start here is simple because if we don't, we won't be filled with what is best. We can't we can't be filled because until we empty ourselves, we are filled with something else. It's called self. You can look at it like this. Self is like the first glass. We are filled with pride. We're filled with self-delusion. And so to get clean, we have to first empty ourselves of that. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor. It's the entrance. You have to empty in order to be filled with the rest of the Beatitudes. That's the point. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. But in order this jar has to be filled with the all-surpassing power, it's got to, get, got to get rid of us. You can ask this question. The question is this. What are the first words that godly people said after they saw God? In the Old Testament, there's about three or four times when really godly people saw God. One was Isaiah. And when Isaiah saw God, here's the very first thing out of his mouth. He 
This is a statement of absolute shock and confrontation with reality as it is. I would say this, Isaiah finally saw himself for the first time when he first saw God. I'm not sure he ever saw himself until he saw God. Compared to God, Isaiah is poor. That's what woe is saying. Woe. That's the point. When it comes to getting into heaven, Revelation says, make sure that you have a robe of white. That's Revelations 22, 14 to 15, because you're not getting in, because outside are all the dirty. So I'll make this point very simple. The poor in spirit. I'll make it as simple as you can get. When it comes to righteousness, which means goodness, kindness, love, when it comes to having care for people or patience, serving others, when it comes to giving up your desires and being faithful, how, how do you compare to Jesus? Well, I, I don't compare. That's the point. Because God actually says, you have to be as good as Jesus to enter into heaven on your own. I can't. I can't. Exactly. That statement, I can't, is poorness of spirit. I think the most important verse in the book of Matthew is Matthew 19, 25 to 26. The disciples just got done with a, talking to a rich man, and Jesus said it's almost impossible for that rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples look at Jesus and they said, who then can be saved? That statement, who then can be saved, is a statement of poorness. And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Because we want the kingdom life, which is Jesus' life in us, but in order to have Jesus' life in us, we have to get rid of us. That's hard. But Jesus said it like this, Blessed are the poor, where theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.